at Luke chapter 18 and starting with verse 18. A certain ruler asked him, that is Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honour your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, And then jump over with me to Philippians chapter 4 and verses 4 to 13. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. For I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we open your word this morning, we pray that it would speak to our hearts. We pray that you would encourage us where we need encouragement, rebuke and challenge us where we need to be confronted with our sin, also that we might live lives worthy of the calling that you have given us. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would refresh in our minds and in our hearts, your words to us this morning. Amen. Um, I I don't know if you've watched Border Security, um, where the noble immigration officers of the Australian Customs Service protect and defend Australia's borders against the criminals, the riffraff, the undesirable tourists who constantly seem to want to come into Australia. It's a show that plays very nicely to our sense that we belong while others do not. Uh, One of the shows that I saw, and I have used this illustration before, but it it works again, so I'm using it again. Uh, Two people stood out to me. Uh, A middle-aged hippie-type gentleman had flown into Melbourne Airport on a tourist visa, and he was being questioned by our noble customs officials. He didn't have any money, and of course, a tourist visa does not allow you to earn an income in Australia. And, And so after a lengthy period of questioning, he was refused entry for not having enough money to support himself. In the same show, a Chinese businessman failed to declare that he was carrying a very large sum of money, $20,000 in fact, in cash, 
far more than the $10,000 you're permitted to bring into our wonderful country. The last we saw of him was him being taken off by the federal police for a strip search. He was refused entry for having too much money. Like bouncers at a nightclub or security guards at a stadium, our border security officers enforce our policies of restricted entry. Those who do not meet the entry criteria cannot enter Australia. We're used to this. Before you get on the flight, you show your passport, you make sure it's stamped with a visa. Before you go into the stadium, you remove any glass bottles from your bag. Before you go into the restaurant, you make sure you meet the dress code. Entry in many places in our society is restricted to those who fail to meet the entry criteria. Well, heaven has its own restricted entry criteria. Like people turned away by the security guard at the stadium or the immigration officers at the airport, many people, Paul says, will be prevented from entering the kingdom of heaven. Uh, in a passage that I need not read because it is now so familiar to us, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That, Paul says, is heaven's restricted entry list. Um, now, like the rich ruler of uh, Luke 18 that we read, many of us can, be claim, can claim to stand up quite nicely against this restricted entry list. I, despite attempting to acquire a taste for alcohol, haven't, and so I've never been drunk. To my knowledge, I've never swindled anyone. I, I did accidentally take some pencils home from Sunday school once as a child, but I'm not sure that that's theft that Paul is talking about here. Uh, what about idolatry? Well, never have I been tempted to bow down to an inanimate object. I've never considered making an offering to a piece of wood or metal. I mean, that would be pretty stupid, right? Here's what uh, Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 44, has to say about idols. He talks about a man who cuts down a tree, uh, and the tree becomes fuel for the man. He takes a part of it and he warms himself. He kindles a fire and he bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes an idol and falls down before it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire, over half he eats meat, he roasts it and is satisfied. And he warms himself and says, aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my god. The idol made by the man in Isaiah 44 gives the man nothing. In fact, the idol has stolen from the man wood that could otherwise have been used for something productive, for cooking or for warming. So as I look at that list of restricted entry sins, I, I feel pretty comfortable un until I get to greed. Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, not the greedy? And in case we missed any 1 Corinthians, Paul says it again in Ephesians Chapter 5, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. He says it again in Colossians, 
Uh, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. For Paul, greed violates not only the last commandment, you shall not covet, but the first commandment as well, you shall have no other gods before me. The sin of greed is the sin of idolatry. The covetous person is the idolatrous person. How, how can this be? How is it that having a, a strong desire to acquire for ourselves more and more material possessions is the same as bowing down to an idol made of wood? How can our material desires, so encouraged in our Western society, actually, according to Paul, be so problematic as to disqualify us from eternal life if left unchecked? Is greed really that bad? How is greed the same as idolatry? Well, we're going to explore that this morning. Firstly, greed, like idolatry, is futile. The fool that we heard about from Isaiah, who took the two pieces of wood and turned one into an idol and the other into cooking fuel, well, it was completely pointless. That idol that the man made can do nothing. And in the long run, those who store up earthly treasure are the same. Earthly earthly treasure has no value in eternity. Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Greed is like idolatry because both are futile, are pointless. Secondly, greed is like idolatry because it corrupts. It spreads within a church. Paul lists it in 1 Corinthians as one of the sins for which believers are to be excluded from fellowship if they persist in it. You see, when we surround ourselves with people who are greedy, we are likely to become greedy ourselves. I work in the financial services industry, as most of you know. I work amongst people who love money. And it's very easy for that love of money and the comforts that money brings to corrupt. Many of those I deal with live in beautiful houses in the northern beaches. Many drive beautiful cars, Teslas, BMWs, while we drive, as you can see in the parking lot, a Kia Cerato. Many of them have holidays to far-off places, ski trips to Aspen or to Whistler, while we take our ski trips to New Zealand. Now, it's not that any of those things are wrong in themselves. There's nothing about the metal that God created, that when it gets turned into a Tesla becomes evil. But what I've observed as I work amongst people who deal with money every day is that they want more. And as they want more, I am tempted to want more. And this is how greed, like idolatry, corrupts those, not just those who commit it, but those around them. Thirdly, greed, like idolatry, is a distinguishing feature of unbelievers. Jesus says, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. See, greed characterizes the world. Greedy people value material wealth over a relationship with God. Just like the rich ruler who we read about in Luke 18. Greedy people trust in themselves and their possessions instead of trusting in God's faithful provision. 
Greedy people seek first not the kingdom of God, but the things of this world. How is greed idolatry? Greed is idolatry because both are the worst expression of unfaithfulness to God. Greed says to God, my highest, my greatest, my deepest desire is not you, but the things that you created. Jesus makes it clear, no one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Gordon Gekko said in the 1980s movie Wall Street that greed is good, that greed is right, that greed works. But God said that greed leads people away from him and into darkness. God says greed is sin. God says greed is idolatry. For the love of money, 1 Timothy 6, is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And so if greed is this bad, we need to talk about it, don't we? I don't, I don't know if you've, you've read through the Gospel of Luke re- recently, but as, as I've skimmed over it in preparing for today, it struck me anew just how frequently Jesus goes after people's money. At Luke chapter 12, someone in the crowd shouts out to Jesus, "'Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me.' Jesus replied, "'Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you?' Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus goes on to tell a parable about a rich fool who builds for himself many barns and whose life is demanded from him. Luke chapter uh, 14, uh, sorry, 15, Um, we have the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, where Jesus shows how much he loves us more than the things that he has created. Luke chapter 16, the parable of the shrewd manager who uses his earthly wealth to gain friends. Luke chapter 16, again, the rich man and Lazarus, where where Jesus says uh, to someone who is in torment, son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Uh, The parable of... Uh, the, the story of the rich ruler in Luke 18 that we read. Luke 19, Zacchaeus, the tax collector who gives away half of his wealth, paying back four times as much to anyone who he has defrauded. Luke chapter 20, the parable of the tenants who are greedy over the vineyard that they are, are renting and, and think that if they kill the owner's son, they will inherit the vineyard. Luke chapter 21, the widow's offering, where Jesus says, all these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on chapter after chapter of Jesus going after our money. Why? Why does Jesus go after our money? Why these commands to give? Why these reflections of judgment on those who are greedy? Well, it's not because God needs our money. Much as the offerings that are put in this plate or or sent into the church's bank account serve him by allowing the work of this church to continue, God created everything that we see. The God who created the entire universe, the God who the Psalms tells us owns the cattle on a thousand hills, does not need our money to accomplish his work. So if it's not because he needs our money, why why does he go after it? Well, he goes after it because he wants our heart. And to get our heart, he needs to empty it of all the stuff that competes with him for our affection. 
And so, he says, you cannot serve two masters. And so, he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. To get to your heart, Jesus needs to go through your stuff. Now, I don't know about you, but as I reflect on my life more and more, I am a greedy person. While I may not drive the Tesla that I wish I could drive, I wish I could drive it. There are days when it seems far more attractive to me than the perfectly adequate car that God has given us. While I enjoy the house that God has provided us and the swimming pool in summer that keeps us cool, there are houses that look more attractive to me in nicer locations, perhaps a bit closer to the station, perhaps with some nicer neighbours at times. There are times when I want a better holiday, when I want better things. So if I'm a greedy person, if you're a greedy person, what do we do about this? Now, it's easy to compare ourselves to people who are greedier, right? It's easier for me to look at others who have more, um, people who are constantly off on holidays or buying some new toy to play with. It's easy for me to find people who are greedier. And so I need to ask myself some questions that I want to ask you today. Do you, like me, find yourself envious of what others have? Or do you find yourself reflecting on God's abundant blessing to you? Do you use your credit card to have things today that you really can't afford until tomorrow, or do you wait for God's timing? Do you spend more than you earn, or do you live in such a way that you can use your material wealth to be radically generous, as God commands His children to be? If I looked at your bank account statement, what would it tell me about what you value? Would it show me that you value people above things? Would it show me that God is the number one priority in your life? Or would it perhaps show me, like you would see if you had looked at mine at times, that you do not value God above everything else, and you find things far more appealing than people? Do you feel secure because you have a healthy bank balance or a good super account? Or do you feel insecure, perhaps, because you don't have those things and you don't have margin? Or do you feel secure because your heavenly Father has promised to provide everything that you need? This came home to me last week. Uh, Wednesday, last week, but the week before, we had a kitchen fire. Our oven sits destroyed in our house. There is fire extinguisher residue everywhere in the kitchen. There is soot and ash across our entire house. Um, we're currently living in a very comfortable apartment in Kellyville while we wait for the insurance company to fix it up. And after I was satisfied that everyone was okay, after I arrived home to three fire engines outside our house and finding everyone outside safely on the lawn, my thoughts turned to, what did they turn to? Well, they turned to, oh, we're insured. The insurance company will cover this. Oh, and, and if there's past that they don't, well, we've got a bit of money saved up in the bank that we can use to, to cover this loss. My thoughts did not turn to the God who provides, to the God who keeps us safe, to the God who promises that even if our entire house burns down, He'll still provide everything that we need. My thoughts turned to our insurance and to our bank account. 
Do you think, like I often think, that our money and our possessions are are ours to do with what we want? Or do you recognise that everything that we have belongs to God, even the things that we spend on ourselves? Now, I can't look into your hearts, but I can look into my heart and I can read the stories of many others and I know that greed is something I've been wrestling with for decades and despite my best efforts, I remain a person who is at times greedy and I suspect you are also. And so we have a problem because we are trained to be greedy and when we're greedy, Paul says, we are unworthy of heaven, we are idol worshippers. Greedy people, Jesus says, use up all their inheritance here on earth and have no inheritance in heaven. Paul gives us the answer to our problem. I've learned, Paul says, in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The solution Paul gives us to our problem of greed is contentment in every circumstance, in times of abundance, in times of need. Now, you might say that's easy for Paul. Paul's society wasn't defined by greed. Paul didn't have to drive past billboards each day to listen to ads on Spotify or the radio, to to watch TV full of ads. Paul's society wasn't built, perhaps, on the flawed premise that having more is always good for us. Desire for material wealth is possibly the distinguishing feature of modern Western society. We aspire to wealth every waking hour of every day. The world says we need more, we deserve more, we should want more. But Jesus' life says does not consist in the abundance of our stuff. Luke 12, 15. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Ecclesiastes puts it this way, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. One of the artists that gets put on high rotation in our house is Keith Urban. We like a bit of country music, the kids enjoy it. Uh, Like many country songs, a lot of his songs focus on a simpler time, a a time of youth. Uh, And I was struck recently by one of the lines, which is, we had nothing but we had it all. And as I look at the rich ruler, who has everything but has nothing. I wonder how often we really think that it's worth sacrificing everything in this world for treasure in heaven. Let's just read again what the rich ruler did. Jesus said to him, you still lack one thing, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. The rich ruler faces this choice. If he is willing to have nothing, He will be given it all. And yet he goes away sad because he has great wealth. If we are not careful, our hearts will be like the rich ruler. Our hearts will desire after the things of this world. And so we need, we must, Paul tells us, foster in ourselves contentment. And yet we can't. We see ads all the time. Paul learns contentment, he says. He wasn't a naturally content person. He learns the secret. And so we, with the Holy Spirit, can learn the secret of contentment. Contentment does not rest on external circumstances, but on internal peace, assurance in God's faithfulness. 
whether we have much or we have little. And as I've thought about what it is to chase contentment, I haven't found the secret, I haven't found Paul's solution, but I have ideas that I want to share with you this morning. Ideas about how we reshape our thoughts and we reshape our actions towards contentment. Firstly, our thoughts. We foster contentment in our hearts as we think less about what we don't have and more about what we have. The world teaches us to think about what we want, what we don't have, advertising specifically designed to make us want more. But the contentment that Paul talks about is not dependent on external circumstances. It reflects trust in God's provision, whether great or small. To the answer of the question, how much is enough, the rich fool says just a little bit more, but the content person says, if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. So our thoughts move to what we have, not what we don't have. Our thoughts move from the greatest to the least. Living in Australia, it's easy to compare ourselves to those around us, particularly those who have more than us. The world says, look ahead, look onwards, look upwards, aspire to a greater salary, the next promotion, the next job. But God's word reminds us that we focus on the least, not the greatest. God's word reminds us that the greatest shall be least. And when we think about the least, we think about the abundant wealth we have in this country, that even the poorest here is wealthy compared to those in other parts of the world. There are billions who have less and few who have more than us. We are free to make decisions about which of our many wants we will satisfy, while others are left unable to satisfy their most basic needs of water, food, safety, clothing, and shelter. Our thoughts move to what we have, not what we don't have. They move from the greatest to the least, and they move to eternity instead of the present. The world says, have now, borrow now to buy. The world says we should seek pleasure now, not delay it. But God's Word tells us to live for eternity, to set our minds on things above where Christ is in the heavenly realms, to reflect on the boundless riches of Christ, on the glorious inheritance that is ours, to store up earthly treasures in the place of eternal abundance and blessing. So we shift our thoughts and we shift our actions. As we refocus our thoughts, we discipline our actions so that we become the kind of content and radically generous people that God wants. One of the practices I've discovered recently is fasting. It's there in God's Word. Jesus says, when you fast, not if you fast. And so when we fast from food, we remind ourselves that God is our provider. When we fast from technology, we remind ourselves that we don't need constant entertainment. We also see less advertising. When we fast from luxuries, we remind ourselves that we can be content with what we have rather than needing more. We practice generosity. When we act generously, whether we give our hospitality, our time, or our money, we remind ourselves that people mean more to us than things. We remind ourselves that we are storing up treasure in heaven, not treasure on earth. And we train our hearts to find joy in the things that gladden God's heart, not the things of this world. And maybe we start to become the kinds of radically generous people that God commands us to be. We practice prayer, because as we seek to develop in ourselves a character of contentment, you, like me, will find that we cannot change ourselves, but we're dependent on God's Spirit working in us to make us more like Jesus. So we we grow our actions towards fasting, towards generosity, and towards prayer. 
all of which point us back to God as our eternal provider. God is our deepest desire. The God who has given us the kingdom of heaven. Undeserving, we have been blessed with the promise of an abundant inheritance that will never spoil or fade. And yet, I suspect that you, like me, are tempted to forsake the wonderful riches of heaven for the deceitfulness of worldly wealth. When God has given us everything we need and the promise of an eternal inheritance, why do we want more? Why are we not satisfied with His perfect provision for us? Why do we cling on to that which is not really ours? Remember, of course, that those of us who have given their lives to Jesus have given everything, not, not just the 10% or maybe the 2% that we put in the plate. God gives us many good gifts, much more than we need. We're right to enjoy them. But if your confidence is having money in the bank, if your satisfaction is in what you have, not who gave it to you, if you feel fulfilled because you earn well, then maybe you've bought into the lie of greed. John Rockefeller, regarded by many as the richest person in history, was once asked how much money is enough. His answer, just a little bit more. When Paul is asked how much is enough, he says, if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to be grateful for what we have, to remember that we don't even need most of what you have given us, and to find joy in simplicity, in generosity, in relationships with others, and most of all, in our relationship with Jesus, our Saviour. Amen.